Do you want to turn to Matthew 6, 19 to 24? If you have a Bible, Matthew 6. Um, we're in this series that we've been on. Sally's great slide can reappear now with the wonderful graphic of Sermon on the Mount. Um, and we've just been looking through the Sermon on the Mount, which is, I guess, one of the most famous speeches ever made, and it's Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom of God. It's really his description of what the world's going to be like when God becomes king and how he wants everybody to live in light of it. What's, what the, what's the world like when, uh, when God rules everything? And most of what we what's kind of give you an outline, in chapter 5, almost everything relates to the way in which we interact with other people. So you have this, um, a lot of instructions in chapter 5 about the way you should approach conflict and odes and marriage and sex and non-retaliation, loving your enemies and responding to persecution. And because we've muddled around the, with the order, some of that is going to be done later in the series, but we're going to do it all. But chapter 5 is basically about how we interact with each other. Chapter 6 is almost all about how we relate to God. And so last week, I think, unless you went way off piece, you're looking at giving, praying, and fasting in response to what God's done. Is that right? And you know, um, doing it for the sake, for for the Lord and not for uh, not for people to look at you and think you're great. But the whole of chapter six really has got that vein. It's like how we uh, relate to God in the in the kingdom life, not just how we relate to others. And in the passage we're looking at today, what we're going to do is see three things that can cultivate, that if we do them, we'll really cultivate our passion for the kingdom of God. And I think, I want to state it that way, that things we can do to increase our passion for the things of God, rather than things that we ought to do because we have a passion for the kingdom of God. And I want to turn it that way round for a very important reason, and this is the big idea of what I'm going to share this morning. And the big idea is that what we do has huge power, and often unnoticed power, to shape what we desire. And what we usually think is the opposite, which is what we desire shapes what we do. What I want to, and that's true as well, but what I want to put to you this morning, very importantly, is that what we do has immense power to shape what we desire. So the way, the the choices we make to behave a certain way, normal, everyday, routine habits and behaviors are very powerful at shaping our desires. And that there are things you can do as a Christian which will help you increase your heart, your passion for the kingdom of God. What we typically think is, no, I'll become passionate about the things of God and then it will work itself out in doing things that God wants. That is true as well. It's like a circle of what you want and what you do. What you want does cause what you do, but what you do will drive what you want a lot more than often we realize. And I want to just sketch, I suppose, a little bit before we look at this. So you can go back to the previous page in a way if you want, Sally, and just show us a nice picture of a mountain. Um, that is nice. I just enjoy the image. And the screen in your projector is better than ours, basically. And in Eastbourne, you can't really see it very well. Um, so it's very nice. Um, but I want to sketch how we got to a place where most people think, no, 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 no. To be authentic is really to feel and think something and then to do it. And if you do something without thinking and feeling it, that's somehow wrong. I want to... Sketch how we got there, and then tell you what Jesus says about it. So for a lot of people in the UK today, uh, including a lot of Christians, I think there's quite a naive view of how thoughts, feelings, and actions fit. Okay? So generally what people will think is, you think something, as a result you'll feel something, as a result you'll do something, and that's the chain. And so if you want to, engage, want to get people to live with a passion for God, you just have to get them to think differently, and you just tell them stuff. And persuade them. And then they will feel it. And then they will do it. That's the way most of us think naturally. And I think there's three 
trends, if you'll spare me a moment of historical analysis, right? Three trends which I think have led to that. Firstly, you had the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, which put the individual at the, uh, accidentally kind of, but put the individual at the center instead of the corporate at the center. So instead of it being you come to the church and the church meets God, it was, it had the risk of causing people to think, no, 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 I meet God independently of the church. And so the individual's at the center of the spiritual world and the material world as well. So there's quite an individualistic thing that comes out of the Protestant Reformation, if you know what I mean by that. And then you have the Enlightenment, which is in the 18th century, where lots of uh, basically European white men say, we are the first to really think logically. And no one has ever done that before. And because we can do that, we've figured out that the universe is just an ordered machine. And we can figure out how to manage it and work out how it all works. And because we have this wonderful structure, structured way of viewing the whole universe, um, we, we will reach the conclusion that white European men in the 18th and 19th centuries are really the first people to become reasonable beings. Everybody else has been, you know, the very word enlightenment implies that everybody's been blundering around for hundreds of years going, goodness, it's dark in here. I can't wait till the white guys find the switch. And then they did, and everybody went, wow, look at all these logical, we are this disinterested, reasonable being who just does things that logically make sense. And that's the way that our culture is very much wired. And you'd still find that clash of worlds every time you turn on the news and you see people interacting with you know, America and the Middle East. And you think a lot of that sort of way of looking at the world comes out in that sort of discourse. Because we're thinking, no, we are very reasonable, rational, logical people. We don't go in for superstition and oddities like that. We just think sensibly. And then on top of that, you also have the Romantic movement, which is sort of poetry and artistic expression and music, which is really an expression of how the feelings of the, and again, it's usually men, the feelings of men and self-expression is really the essence of what it is to communicate and to do art. And we guess out what's within, and in doing that, we express our our feelings and our values in an authentic, rugged way. We we don't dress it up, we don't gloss it, we simply say as as we feel, and we do what we feel. And actually, if you don't do that, you're inauthentic. That's the way, again, the Romantic movement is sort of an encouragement, really, to live out that which is deep in the heart and that which is in the feelings. And so with those three things, Protestantism, the Enlightenment, and some of you didn't think you were going to get a history lesson, so I'm sorry that we're done now. But with those three things, Protestantism, the Enlightenment, and the Romantic movement, three things happen which cause human beings, and particularly in our country, to think about ourselves as people who think things logically and feel things emotionally, and in response to those two things, act in accordance with the way we think and the way we feel, and that's simply the way the world is. And we are individuals who act and feel, and as a result, live in a particular way. And what we don't notice, which is crucial, is that our actions, individually and corporately, dramatically shape the way we think and the way we feel. So we assume what happens is, I do this because I think it's right. And what we don't notice is true is, I think this is right because I do it. We just don't realize that that's the way we are wired as people. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Okay? So if you, if you follow Jesus, you're a Christian, which most of us here are. Um, I had a fascinating example recently where I was talking to some leaders who were training theologically. And we threw out the question, I think it was something about um, whether or not, it was quite an interesting pastoral one. Like, would you baptize somebody who hadn't yet, repented of this particular issue in their life they are i don't know what it was you know they're in an adulterous relationship but they want to follow jesus would you baptize them or something like that i can't remember the example um and it was interesting because i got two answers two different answers from the group and one person said 
I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't baptize them. No, well, the, one, the first person said, I would baptize them. I would do, even if they're still dealing with this issue, I would baptize them. Because in our church, when we baptize people, we say, because you have trusted in Jesus for your salvation, we baptize you in the Father's name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So he quoted what their church said every time they did it. And then another guy said, no, I wouldn't baptize them. Because in our church, we say, because you have repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And it was interesting, as the two of them looked at each other, they suddenly, and I said immediately, isn't it interesting that rather than reasoning your way to what you, th- what you should do, what's actually happened is the thing that you do, the thing that you always say, the liturgy you use when you baptize somebody, has caused you to think that way about the issue, not the other way around. And it's the same in churches all the time. I found that quite interesting. It's the same reason I always encourage people to, that's why we were breathing just now, actually. I didn't mean it for, to connect with this, but that's why, why we would... Breathe in, breathe out thing. That's why I encourage people clap. Why John often says, you know, let's sing, let's stand, let's move, let's raise our hands. Let's, because actually you're, what you do affects the way you feel and what, the way you think. Um, whereas again, English people generally go, I will stand here like this. And when I feel immensely happy, I will do this. And when I feel even a little bit happier, I'll go, or whatever. And actually there's an important challenge in the Bible again and again. Do this because what you do affects what you think and feel. Um, so that's a couple of everyday examples, if you like. And certainly in my world, they're everyday examples. Um, oh, another one, one more. I, I often think about this with arranged marriages. In our country, we don't have arranged marriages. Um, or we do, but not normally in sort of Western culture anyway. But in a lot of parts of the world, it's very, very common. I'm not talking about forced marriages here, but arranged marriages. And so you have an arranged marriage. You say, you're now good. Chris is now going to be, gonna, we've, we know Chris, we're his parents. We've figured him out, and we think he will be just made for Jill, whose parents think that she will just be made for him. And they don't even know each other. And they get introduced to each other, and off they go, and they form a marriage. And in our Romeo and Juliet kind of world, we go, no, 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 authentic love and romance is about I feel this and as a result I do it. And yet there are many civilizations where they have far, their marriages stay together more than ours do, even though they started by doing something rather than feeling it. And often they've got lower divorce rates than us, which is an interesting point. I don't know if any of you have thought about that. But in other words, we can act our way into a new way of thinking, not just think our way into a new way of acting. And all of that is background to what we're now going to read, which I hope will show three ways in which Jesus would have us act differently in order to produce and cultivate different desires. We're going to see what they are. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the big idea is what we do has immense power to shape what we desire. 
And what Jesus is doing here is giving us three things that we can do to cultivate our desires in the kingdom, rather than just saying, as we've said, no, desire these things and then you will do them. Okay, so if you think about the way that we live, and I'm speaking to all of us, not just using examples of others, but the way we live in normal life, what we do has immense power to shape what we desire. So, for example, the, the, the liturgy we use, I quoted it with baptism, but we, in our kind of church, we have a liturgy. We don't call it that usually, but we do. We say the same sorts of things at a meeting. I, once, I heard somebody say very recently, uh, we, we don't have any phrase that we use every week except... By the way, if you're a visitor, you don't have to put anything in the offering, which I thought was quite funny. That's the only phrase that always comes out. But actually, in our church, there's quite a lot of phrases like that, isn't there? Let's stand together. Okay, we're going to do this and sing, sing one song. In fact, I could go to another church like ours and never have been there, and I know exactly what's going to happen. And so would you, because you've been there before. And David and Gillian have been around, and so Chris and Jill have been around a very long time. They'd know exactly what happens in all churches like ours, because you stand up, one song, then there's a little person that pops up in a couple of minutes, and then you go on. And, yes. and what we sing, and what we do, and what we say shapes the way our theology works in the end. And in some churches, some of you, who've been to a church where you'd say the creed every week? Has anybody been to a church like that? You used to be part of a church like that? Um, and so you'd start, every week you would stand together and say, I believe in God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, ruler of all things. And you'd go on like that. That shapes, that hab- habit shapes your beliefs. It's not just that your beliefs shape. You didn't write it. Somebody did a long, long time ago and you say it and it makes the way you think about the world different. Similarly, consumerism, right? The way in which we do things in our culture, we buy things and throw them away like the what was it, a couple of days ago, I, some object, some, something had broken and I realized that to fix it was going to be much, much more expensive and fiddly than to go and buy a new one and that's often true in our world. And actually the fact that we live that way shapes the way we think about things. It makes us feel that human beings are more likely to be functional and people who basically play a role in serving and producing stuff and we think entirely positively about technology because of our consumer kind of culture. If we have a family meal together every day, it will, over time, shape the way we think about relationships. It's not just, oh, we value relationships so we live this way, but we live this way and it will increase our valuing of relationships. And so what Jesus is doing here is really applying that way of thinking to three issues. He says, here are three things you can do that will dramatically increase your passion for the kingdom of God. Number one, where, can we just go to the text again? The first thing you can do is you just focus on where your treasure is. That's the first thing you can do to change the way you feel, right? change your desires, where your treasure is or your money. The second thing you can, affect, you can live differently to produce different feelings is where your eyes are, right? which is the bit in the middle. Where your eyes are or where your attention is. What are you actually physically looking at? And the third thing you can change is where your service is or your effort. Right? So you've got three things that you're in control of. What you do with your money, what you do with your eyes, and what you do with your service or your effort. And Jesus is saying, by using those three wisely, you will create and cultivate a passion for the kingdom of God. Or, by using them unwisely, you'll create passions for all sorts of other things. And in theory, most of us think about that upside down. Most of us think, no, 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 you get a passion for something, your passion reaches a certain level, and then you live it out. And there is some truth to that, but our behavior shapes our desires. So our treasure, our eyes, and our service will dramatically shape what we want our desire. So if you want to cultivate a passion for the kingdom of God, here's three simple ways of doing it. Firstly, our treasure. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal because, for 
Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The treasure goes there and your heart goes with it. Rather than your heart... I, I read this wrong for years. I thought, where your treasure is, that will show you where your heart is. That's not what he says. He says, when you put your treasure somewhere, your heart will follow it. So if you want to affect your heart, you want to, I want, I'd love to have a greater passion for God. Then he says, the, the thing you do is you need to spend your money differently. Because where your treasure goes, your heart will follow it. You become committed to something financially, and you will become committed to something, in a, to a much greater degree, emotionally. That, to be honest, is the main reason we have an offering every week and the main reason we're doing a gift day next week as a church. That's honestly the main reason. I, I'm I, the elder responsible for overseeing all the finances, really, in the church. And I can say this, that even if somebody said, look, here we are, so our, over all the sites and the trading company we have and the building and everything, we turn over £800,000 a year. It's a huge amount of money. But if somebody said, here's £800,000 in one check, some rich donor did that, or somebody died and said, here we now we've got an endowment forever, we would still take up an offering every week and we would still do gift days because we believe it's such a powerful way of Christians committing something financially. That's why I do it as well. We commit something financially in order to help our heart get after it. It's not just a fundraising gig. It does, of course, pay for things. It pays for this building, and it pays for chairs, and it pays for me, and it pays for lots of things. But that's not really the reason, main reason we do it. The main reason we do it is in order to do what Jesus said here, which is to use our finances in a way that causes our heart to follow and to commit to what he's doing. So giving isn't just mainly about fundraising. It's actually about casting a vote every time with people just now the buckets went round and people are effectively voting this matters to me this is why God's purposes matter and I want my heart to go further after it so there we go there's a, a check a coin a, a note whatever it might be and as I'm doing that I am I'm speaking to my heart I want my heart for this thing I'm giving to to grow so in our case there's a couple me and Rachel in our family, it would be far more tax efficient. I don't know if have you ever thought this. So Chris is the volunteer who works at the King Centre. I wonder if it's ever occurred to you how tax inefficient it is for me to give financially to the church. Because what happens is the church pay my salary, I get taxed on it, and then I give back the tax, taxed portion back to the, some, of the, some of it back to the church. And people could look at that and think, you fool, you just don't understand the most basic principles of economics. I think, actually, why don't you instead just pay them less and not give them the choice to give or not, and just dock it from their salary, and then they don't have to give. And some of you are now thinking, yeah, actually, why don't we do that? I can't believe I never thought of it. And the reason why we don't do it is because it's very, very valuable for me, as a leader in the church, to have a choice about whether or not I am going to give to the church, because if it was done for me by some technical exercise in bank accounts, I would have no say over, actually, every month there is a commitment from me and Rachel to give such an amount to the church and to give to other things based on the fact that I want my heart to go after it. And if it was just done with an exercise in a bank, I wouldn't have that experience. And that would be a very silly example, if you like, but that's why, and you know, see, we lose money overall on that deal. But do it because it means it's actually my call and it's our sacrifice rather than some decision somebody else has made for us. So practically, I encourage you, if you've never financially invested in the kingdom of God, I don't just mean in the local church, but personally, that's, I think there's good reasons for making that the first place you give. Um, but even if, you haven't, if you've never done that, I just start, start tiny, start small, but begin to put your treasure and your heart will follow. So the first thing he says, and it's just straight from Jesus, it's not Andrew here, and it's nothing, you know, unrelated really to any particular offering or need. 
So that's the first thing you can do to cultivate your passion for the kingdom is use your treasure and think, right, I would like to have a greater passion for that and as a result, I'm going to start giving to it. I, would like to have, I want to increase my passion for the local church, so I'll give to the local church. I want to increase my passion for global mission, so I will contribute to global mission. I want to decrease my passion for that thing that I feel has got a real hold over my life, so I'm going to stop funding it. I'm going to stop feeding the beast, and instead I'm going to... Do you see what I mean? You, that's how you're, you're, you work. You think, I'm giving to this, I must care about it. So that's the first thing you can do. Second thing you can do is you can you choose to use your eyes differently. Right? So you cultivate the passion for the kingdom of God with your money, but you also use your eyes. And this bit always gets lost in this passage. Everybody knows this passage. If you're a Christian for a year or two, you've heard it. Where your treasure is, your heart is all about money. And people miss this bit in the middle. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So Jesus' second way of cultivating a passion for the kingdom here is to say, is what you look at, physically what you look at with your eyes. So I'm going to ask you to do a little exercise for a moment. Consider in the last 24 hours all the things that you have physically looked at. Just try and make a mental list, okay? I'll give you a, a few seconds of quiet to do that. Okay? All the things you've looked at in the last 24 hours. A lot of different things, I imagine, right? So you, lots of, a lot of them will be human faces, and a lot of them will be the back of your own eyelids while you're asleep and other things like that, which is fine. But what you look at physically, what you give your eyes to, has huge power to shape what you want. It just does. If you don't look at certain things, it's that simple. It's not even just thinking about them. Sometimes the very act of looking at something will affect your desire, or not looking at something will cut off your desire. What you give your attention to makes a huge difference to the amount of passion you have for it. So confession time. I watched the last series of The Great British Bake Off. I don't care at all about baking. I have never cared about baking. I'm not talented at any form of culinary experience. And you wouldn't want to be cooked for by me. And baking to me is the hardest bit because it's like mechanical. And if you get a slightly wrong thing. Rach made a cake early on before when we were dating. And it... And it and she ended up like leaving out any eggs. And you make a cake, a cake with eggs without any eggs. It just doesn't go well. And I just thought, this is not for me. I'm not going to be a baker. We started watching this show because someone said, you'll like it. It's like this sort of reality TV thing that you'd like. And so we started watching it. And it's amazing how simply by spending an hour of my week watching people baking and enjoying the competition, I began to think, I actually, maybe, yeah, maybe, bake, maybe Rachel should, yeah, actually, yeah, that is a good idea. Why don't you bake that? Oh, can I help? Can, oh, I'll do the, oh. And you start, it was weird, out of nowhere, just watching something about baking, which I was watching because I like seeing who gets kicked out and I find Paul Hollywood interesting and, you know, Mary Berry and all that. I began watching it, but my desire had begun to be cultivated. It wasn't why I did it. I wasn't trying to get a passion for it, but it just began to follow. I, that's a, an example I have re- I've had very recently. Has anybody been in, worked in a career where they have a trade press? Have you ever had that thing, you know, well, you know like magazines for the trades? Well, you know, this week it's closet, closet week or something, and they sort of have this one, you know, some of, nobody here ever worked on a trade like that. Nobody has. You have, okay? I, I used to have to read them as part of my job as a con- management consultant, and you, you'd, you'd go in to try and learn a lot about it, and it would be like, Piping matters. And you'd have this thing, this magazine, that's produced by people who really care about piping. 
It's what they give their attention to all the time, and they make these magazines about it. They have these trade shows. People come from, they usually go to places like Telford, and they go to this huge exhibition center in a place like Telford, and they all go around and look at lots of different pipings and go, oh, extrusions, oh, yes, yes, yes. Very important. Oh, much better than that one. And they have this whole world revolving around this thing that they give their attention to. But the fact that they, they didn't grow up like that. No one as a teenager is going, oh, yeah, I really like extrusions. But they go and become part of their job, and, in, and people gradually get a passion for it. And they begin to think, this really matters. I want to have the best possible piping experience, which is not language the rest of us use. And it just realized this is always happening, that what you look at all the time will really change what you want, will really change what you desire. So think about what you do with your eyes and think about where they are. So of the last 24, 48 hours, how much of the time have your eyes, let's exclude human faces, okay? That's great. Human faces are good things to spend your time looking at while you're talking to people. <laughs> it's just rude not to. But exclude them for a minute. Where have your eyes been? Television, I imagine. Magazines or newspapers, books, websites, social media, things like that, right? Maybe scenery, that's lovely as well. But where have they been? And how much of your eye time has gone on those different things? I'm not asking for an actual answer, but just consider it for a moment. You find that you are, in a, in a day, making a multitude of decisions about where your heart will end up, assuming your heart follows your eyes, the eyes, the lamp of the body. If the eyes are good, everything else will be good. So. Jesus is saying, where your eyes are going will affect where your heart goes. Now, where are your eyes going? Because that will affect your passion. So for me, it's a very obvious thing. I spend quite a lot of time on Twitter as a social media thing. So for me, making sure that all the people who are feeding into my Twitter feed are all... I've got two news feeds and almost, I think, every single other one. I mean, one friend of mine is a comedian. And the other 50 people I follow, are all, they're all people who I know or organizations who I know will try and increase my desire for God. And so I'm not saying it has to be everyone, but I know that when I'm on Twitter, I will get bombarded daily with people trying to get me to think theologically and think about God. And that's really good for me. So I, I've deliberately, because I, I, I know I'm going to spend a lot of time doing that, so I want my eyes to be drawn to things which continually go, look, there is a God, look, look at what God's doing in the world. That will really help me. The TV shows you watch. Again, I'm not saying we're always watching religious broadcasting. I find most religious broadcasting to be very annoying, actually. But just to think through what are the things that I'm giving my eyes to, and if I spend lots and lots of my time looking at this, this, and this, I should not be surprised. In fact, I should be certain that my heart will follow those things I'm looking at. And for me, it was a tra travel guides, I realized a few years ago, we are not going to be able to do much traveling at the stage of life I'm in now, with young kids like ours. So I just need to stop reading travel books, because travel books feed a desire in me to go, 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 and my eyes are drawing my heart after them, and I'm then getting frustrated that I can't go. So that's not helping. So now I only get a travel book, I think, if I'm actually going to be going to that place in the next month or two. Um, so it's just like a, it's little things. I'm, some of you are going, oh, yeah, obvious, I know, tell me another thing. For a lot of us, though, this may be a, an important challenge to hear today. Like, how do I cultivate a passion for God? Well, one of the things is I need to de be deliberate about where my eyes go. So could you just do one more little pause and think for a moment? Could you just think, is there one habit I could change that might affect one habit I could change with my eyes that will then affect what I do with my heart. Is there one thing I currently spend a lot of time looking at that I could adapt in order to in increase my passion for God? Just pause for a moment and consider that. One eye habit, if you like. Okay.
If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. This is, this should be a, a, this is a releasing thing, not a mm-hmm thing. You know, I, wow, it's that simple. I can simply choose to look at different stuff and it will change my heart. Yes. I can choose to give to different things with my money and it will change my heart. Yes. The third thing, which we'll conclude with three ways to cultivate a passion, with our treasure, with our eyes, and finally with our service. What we serve, what we give our effort to. No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So let's ask, who are we serving? Right? An alien comes down to watch your life for 24 hours, or a week, with a view to writing a report about what Paul Jeffrey is serving in his life. Okay? The alien follows Paul around and sees everything he does. At the end of it, what's he going to say? What is it? This, it seems that this person is serving X. Right? What, what would the alien say? Now, let the guilt cloud lift, okay? This is not a guilt moment. Oh, probably think I'm serving food or serving this. Let the guilt cloud lift for a moment. This is not the same as asking, do you spend all your time working in a church? That is, I'm supposed to, and Chris is supposed to, but nobody else in this room is supposed to. You're supposed to spend most of your time working in a job or working, looking after children or working, helping in a volunteer capacity or something. Working, whether it's paid or unpaid, is what we're supposed to do. Okay, so we are supposed to be working with lots of our time and sleeping and talking to family members and friends and so on. That's what you do is meant to be that. The question I'm asking is not what are you doing with your time. The question I'm asking is what or who are you serving with what you're doing with your time? And that's very different because you probably know that there are ways of working that are serving money and there are ways of doing the exact same activities that are serving God. And Jesus says, listen, You need to think about who you're serving because actually if you serve this money, you will not be able to serve God. And if you serve God, you'll find that there's no space to serve money. So you can choose by where you put your effort and by what you are serving in, you can affect your desire for God. And that's brilliant. Which is obviously also connected to the first principle, the treasure one. Because if you are giving lots away, it becomes very difficult for money to have a hold over your heart. So if you then, you turn out, it just turns out I'm great at making money. That's what I do. And I'll go in and I'll I could be really effective in a job, making lots and lots of money and being very, being a great, whatever it was, doctor, lawyer, you know, master business person. I'm not sure that's a real thing, but you know. And I could generate lots and lots of money and it wouldn't be about serving money at all because I'm giving lots away as well. So that doesn't really have my heart. My service is so that I can create money to be able to do this, to give or to create jobs and wealth for other people or whatever. When I was in business, I was serving God. So are many people in this church. And some people tragically can be working for the church, but serving money. So it's not about the job you do. I'm not saying here, by the way. Yeah, I've always thought that about jazz. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But actually, it isn't about where you work. It's about who you are serving when you work. Where is the service going? Where is, on whose behalf is the effort being made? So are, we, are we using money to serve people? Or are we using people to serve money? And in the end, Jesus says, you can't do both. You have to choose. It's impossible. He's not just saying you mustn't. He's saying you can't. It's impossible to serve God and serve money. So if you want to cultivate a passion for the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying there are three things. Some of you, and a lot of you do. And I think probably all of us do in a lot of ways. Yeah, I would like to have a bigger heart for God. And practically, it's challenging. Normal life comes in and there's pressure and there's deadlines and there's lots of things to juggle. And to be honest, in a lot of given days I have, I, I just, 
what between these sort of there's a health problem over here in my family and there's this pressure and that email to answer I find it really hard to cultivate a passion for God and I imagine that's true for many of us if that's true Jesus is saying here's three kind of easy wins think about what you do with your money think about what you do with your eyes what you physically look at and think about what you do with your service and if you recalibrate those things you'll find your passion follows them so I began by saying sometimes we're a bit naive about this. and We think, no, we just feel and think and as a result do. I think it's very important not to get conned by that alone. Because if you do, you'll think, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Because at the moment, I think the right things and I feel the right things and I still don't do these things. So there's no way, there's no hope, there's no way of changing it. And Jesus is saying to us, no, there are things you can do where your treasure is, your heart will follow. If your eye is full of good, then so will the, you cannot serve both God and money. But if you serve the right thing, you, won't, you will want to serve God. And so with those three kind of tools, effectively, we can just rethink through our lives, our weeks, whatever. And as a result, end up, hopefully with all three, end up cultivating a passion for the kingdom, which for good many reasons is going to be the best thing for us in the world. So this is not, to, not for guilt. This is not for, oh, there's more things I need to do. It's actually saying, look, you're doing these things already. You're looking at a lot of stuff. You're spending a lot of money. Even the poorest among us are responsible for lots of money. As we do them, let's make sure that oh, we're channeling them in the right direction with a view to the glory of God. He said, okay, do you see, see my heart in this? That, that's, I think that's what Jesus is saying as well. Um, but I want us to just be released, really, from the sense of, oh, and instead be like, wow, that's actually quite straightforward in some ways. I can do that and cultivate a passion for God. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your uh, liberating gospel. Thank you, for, thank you for the fact that as we've just been seeing as we were worshipping, really, how much has been done for us by God. And we don't, in this sense, we, it's not like you do 80% and then you say, now here's the last 20, guys, take the baton home. You say, no, I've done 100%. And on that basis, I'm freeing you from all of the other things you could serve or give your attention to, or give your money to. I want to liberate you from those things so you can become a fully-hearted, devoted servant of God. I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, I pray you'd liberate us from the other things we might serve, from the other treasures we might invest in all the time, from the other things our eyes, some of us are a bit enslaved with some of the things we're looking at. And I pray that you'd break the power of what we physically look at, what we spend our money on and what we serve in order to liberate us into serving you, which we, is ultimately what we want. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen.